This morning's gospel lesson uh, comes from John in the 20th chapter, uh, which is referred to, you can catch echoes of it, in the opening hymn, which the question is asked, do you love me? Which reminds us of the experience that Jesus had with Peter on the Sea of Galilee following his resurrection, and he was feeding them breakfast. It's wonderfully humble, <laughs> homely uh, picture of Jesus cooking them fish over an open fire. They'd been out all night sleeping, not sleeping, fishing. And Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter replies, yes, you know that I love you. And again, Jesus asked him, and Peter says, yes, yes, I love you. The third time Jesus asked, and you could almost hear the exasperation in Peter's voice, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Like, why do you keep asking me the same question? And I can imagine at that moment the bell ringing in the back of Peter's consciousness. Oh, yeah, just like on the night of his trial when I denied him three times. It's not unreasonable that he asks three times. It's reminding him about how God continues to unfold and work in our lives, denying, accepting, rejecting, believing. It's never-ending. It's a, it's a process. It's not a been-there-done-that. It's, it's the continual growth and development in our relationship with Christ. And so this morning's uh, lesson comes from the gospel, the, from the book of Acts in the ninth chapter. This is one of the great foundation stories of uh, Scripture. It's one of those uh, experiences, one of those stories that's so widely understood that even if you've never cracked open a Bible or been to a church, uh, you will recognize the reference, he had a Damascus Road experience. He had a Damascene moment, the moment when somebody's life turns around. And it's from this story, of course, with Saul, who is, as he describes himself, the Pharisee of Pharisees, one incredibly devoted to the will of God, and in the earliest days of Christianity, this interreligious intra-religious question within Judaism over whether Jesus is the Messiah, and some Jews are persecuting other Jews who say Jesus is the Messiah. Those are called followers of the way. And Saul is their great persecutor. In fact, he's present at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And Saul doesn't actually throw any stones but he holds the coats, the cloaks of those who throw the stones. This is one of those foundation stories. It's like Moses in the Sinai, tending his father-in-law's sheep, sees a, a bush that's burning and notes that the bush is not consumed. And contemplating the unconsumed bush, the bush begins to speak. <laughs> And Jesus, I mean, Moses says, well, who are you? If you found somebody today speaking to a burning bush, what would you do? Take a picture? <laughs> Put it on, you'd, you'd get so many likes on TikTok, I mean, you'd, be, you'd, you'd become an influencer overnight, whatever that means. I'm not sure what that means. But anyway, that's what you would be. Yeah, you would take, or you'd run the other way. And so... He says, well, I'm the God of your, uh, your forebears, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob and Rebekah. 
Israel and Leah and Rachel. And then Moses says the temerity to say, okay, okay, fine, fine. But what is your name? Well, first of all, he shouldn't have asked the question. It's impertinent for the creature to ask the creator what the creator's name is. But the creator says, answers in a puzzle. Well, I am who I am. It's almost like, you know, well, I am who I am. Who are you, who are you to ask me? But what he really say? I am the ground of being. I am beingness itself. Well, in the same way, we find here an experience where there's a great light, there's a disembodied voice, and there's the ambiguity in the outcome. So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 9, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he could go there and if he found anyone who belonged to the way, and that's what the early Christians were called, followers of the way, it was a way of life. Christianity is not a set of beliefs. Christianity is not a doctrine, an accumulated book of dogma. Christianity is a way of living. It's a way of being. Followers who belong to the way, men and women, that he might bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. His heretics. Now, as Saul was going along his way and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And Saul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, Who are you, sir? And the reply came, Well, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. If we give ourselves permission, you can almost hear the humor in this. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you? Well, I'm the one you're persecuting. (laughs) Jesus. Oh, And then the voice said, get up and enter the city, and you will be told there what you are to do. So here's Saul. He's on his way to Damascus. He has letters from the chief priests. He's going to arrest people. He's going to bring them back. They're going to get stoned to death. Life is good. Right? Instead, he gets knocked on his, and then this light comes. He doesn't fall off a a donkey or an ass despite all the paintings that you've seen, he's walking. and says, go into the city and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the voice, but they couldn't see anybody. And Saul got up from the ground. You can see him pulling himself up. Got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And so the men who were with him led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, Saul was there without sight 
neither eating nor drinking. Imagine how Saul feels discombobulated. He goes there, he's all, man, he's, he's got a, too much testosterone going on. He's going in there, he's going to make some trouble. And he ends up blind and sitting in a room all by himself, not eating or drinking. Everything he's assumed about his life, it's over in the flash. Now there was a disciple in Damascus who was called Ananias. And the Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias answered, here I am, Lord. Don't you love it in the Bible? It's so clear. You know, when God speaks to you, he calls you by name. <laughs> I've never had that happen. Have you? Maybe. I don't know. But I've felt the Lord moving in my life, but the clarity. Ananias, oh, here I am, front and center, ready to go. What do you want? He's like the prophet Isaiah. When God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will go. And so the Lord said to him, now I want you to get up and go to the street that's called Straight. In the ancient world, there were very few straight streets. You know, they all, it's like going to Boston. <laughs> no, you ever been in the Freedom Trail? You want to get lost, go to Boston. You can follow the directions, you'll still get lost. None of the streets are straight. Go to the street called Straight, and you'll find somebody there in the house of Judas, not the Judas. Judas was a very common name, like Joe. Go to the house of Judas and look for a man from Tarsus called Saul. Now, Tarsus is a city in Asia Minor, Turkey, on the Mediterranean coast. It's still there. You can go visit it today. And Saul was from Tarsus. Everybody knows that. And at this moment, Saul is in a house. He's praying. And he has seen a vision. The vision he has seen is of a man named Ananias. You. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now Ananias answers, uh, well, Lord, here I am. But I have heard many things about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And now he's come here from Jerusalem, from the authorities, to bind all and invoke your name. It's essentially saying, don't really want to go. But the Lord said to him, Go, for Saul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and all the people of Israel, and I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went. He screwed up his courage. Ananias went and entered the house. And he laid his hands on Saul, trembling. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has appeared to you on the way here. He has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from the eyes of Saul and his sight was restored. He got up, 
he was baptized, and then after taking some food, Saul regained his strength. Amen. You ever been to a baptism, and afterwards there's a big party, and there's food and juice and punch and everything? This is why. After the baptism, eat some food. It's in the Bible. Read it here. It's right here in the book of Acts. That was a joke. Come on, you're killing me this morning. <laughs> Work with me, people. Okay. So Ananias has the courage to go to Saul. And Saul, his sight is restored, and he gets up. And from here, by fits and starts, not immediately, not seamlessly, but over time, gains his, his strength and his orientation, and he does become the great apostle to the Gentiles. It's because of Saul, who will become known as Paul, that you and I are here. It's Saul who transforms this intra-Jewish sectarian movement of followers of the way, Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, transforms it from a sectarian movement within Judaism into a worldwide religion. It begins with Saul, who has the courage, the strength to go beyond the defined boundaries of his age and his religion, his people, to recognize that the love of God is for all people. But without Ananias, Saul is still sitting in Damascus, waiting in a corner, in the dark, not only of the room, but of the physical and spiritual darkness that afflicts him. No Ananias, no Saul, who becomes Paul. And then he disappears from the narrative. That's his one appearance, his cameo. Fifteen minutes of fame, more like two minutes. Without Ananias, there is no Paul who comes to us all. Last week, I had a wonderful conversation with Trey Kayumba. Trey was born in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, spent most of his uh, childhood in uh, the Republic of South Africa, post-apartheid, and then as a young adult moved to America, and now lives in Fairfield and is a teacher here in town. Let me just say parenthetically, if that doesn't speak to the miracle of America, I don't know what does. Born in the Congo, raised in South, uh, in South Africa, it ends up living in Fairfield? How the heck did that happen? It's like the family in Afghanistan who now lives in Black Rock. It's the genius of America. It's immigration that makes us who we are, that makes us great, I would think. But that's a different sermon. And in the course of the conversation, Trey, who is the founder of Fairfield Yabuntu, which is an interracial, intercultural youth group uh, that brings together black, brown, and white kids for after-school homework help and for social programs on Friday evenings, and they're meeting in our church in Rhodes Hall, using our facility, growing this wonder. You go to these meetings, and it's so inspiring to be with these kids who see each other as kids. Not as black, not as brown, not as white. I mean, they are. 
and the society has already infected them with the racism which is inherent in American society. It's in our mother's milk, for heaven's sakes. But it's an antidote to that great toxic stew which is hatred. And in the midst of our conversation, uh, Trey said to me, well, you know, you've been doing this for 38 years. Yes. He said, why? <laughs> you know, and after 38 years, you really ought to have an answer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no. And it, my thought went back to my professor at the Boston University School of Theology. And he said, uh, you're preparing to go into the ministry, to be ordained. And only do this if you can't do anything else. <laughs> not the way you think I mean, right? It's not like the, uh, the terrible old uh, trope that says those who can do and those who can't teach. That's a terrible thing to say. Teaching is a skill. It's a vocation. I reject categorically the idea that those who do can and those who can't teach. He didn't mean if you can't do anything else like you're incompetent, you can't tie your own shoes, so go into the ministry and they'll take care of you. What he meant was if you can be fulfilled, if you can be happy, if you can find your truest self, find your bliss doing something else, then go do that. This is what Howard Thurman said, of course, who was the dean of Marsh Chapel at Boston University, my alma mater. He wasn't there when I was there. He was there in the 40s and 50s. In fact, he was one of the mentors of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where he earned his doctorate at the BU School of Theology. And Howard Thurman used to say, don't ask what the world needs and then go do that. Ask what gives you the greatest joy. What brings you joy? What brings you alive? And then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come fully alive. When you're living your vocation, you are who you are meant to be. And that's what my professor meant. If this is who you are called to be, then follow that vocation. But if this is not your vocation, that's okay. There are so many ways in which to serve the goodness of the Lord. You don't have to be clergy to do it. You don't have to be Saul, Paul, to make a difference. Ananias. We don't know anything else about Ananias, except that he had the courage to answer God's call and the courage to go and meet Saul, who was terrorizing his people, and to change not only the course of Saul's life, not only change the course of Christianity, but in a very real way to change the course of human history. It was Ananias. So where did Ananias find the courage to do what he did? It came, I believe, from the fact that he was a member of the way. He had already felt the power, the love, the unconditional regard in which he is held by God as a member of the way that followed Jesus. 
And so he trusted in God enough that he was willing to step out into the unknown circumstances into which God was calling him, and to do what needed to be done, and leave the rest to God. Because he felt that he was loved. And because he was loved, because he lived in that place of absolute security, he was able to do what needed to be done. And that was my answer to Trey. Why have I been doing what I've been doing for 38 years? Because of my deep desire, my calling, that I have felt from the divine, to preach the gospel in such a way that people will know that love, live in a community of unconditional regard, that will view themselves and every person they meet in all the world, even the people they don't meet, most perhaps most especially the, the people they don't meet, and perhaps most especially the people who they think are the enemies of God, and to love them in the way that God loves them. This is the most difficult thing that Jesus said, of course. Love your enemies. Do not hate them. Pray for them. We're like, say what? Because that's the way God sees them. And to preach the gospel in such a way that people will find the security in their relationship with God, with each other, in a community, that they will have the strength to act on their faith. The life of faith is not to satisfy ourselves, for ourselves only, but to empower and equip us to live the gospel to serve the world on God's behalf. God didn't create the church so that those who cross the threshold of a particular pile of bricks on the corner of Beach and Old Post Road may find themselves in a club. It ain't a club. We're the vanguard of heaven. We're the beachfront of the coming reign of God. That's why we're here. That's why I've been doing what I've been doing for 38 years. And Trey said, oh, pretty cool. <laughs> and I thought so as well. That's why it's become such a, uh, why it has been such a uh, great honor and privilege to be one of your pastor for all these years. Because here, in this place, or in that place, or in Audubon Center, or on the beach, the church is not a pile of bricks. <laughs> you know, the church is the people of God. In this church, among these people, among you, with you, I've always found a group of people who were serious about their faith. They didn't want to belong to a club. They didn't want to be part of the religious auxiliary of this or that or the other thing. They didn't count their life of faith and their participation in the body of Christ as a, a happy convenience, but rather as a high and noble calling that entailed 
a real responsibility. The authority to act on behalf of God, the audacity to claim the are we acting for God, the wonderful and powerful audacity of hope by which we have sought to express God's desire and love for the world in every day and every circumstance. And because of your willingness to stand foursquare against the toxic stew of hatred which has become so much a defining part of our American life. Richard Rohr recently wrote, Franciscan priest, you cannot really be an authentic Christian and be an anti-Semite, a racist, an Islamophobe, a homophobe. You can't hate people because of who they marry and who they love. You can't deny the identity and the reality of God's love for anyone because to do so is to deny the reality of God's love for you and for all humanity. People may claim Christianity, but we all know that it's not authentic. Listen, between 1933 and 1945, the people who drove the trains, who staffed the camps, who turned the gas on in the ovens and in the dropped the canisters of Cyclone B, were Christians. No wonder Christians have a bad name. You, on the other hand, have been the kind of people who have always deeply desired, and not just desired, act in such a way, acted in such a way, to give Christ a good name, to honor Christ by the reality of your commitment to love, to live in the light of God's love. It's in the first letter of John, where it says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love, I think, means the love of God for each of us, for all of humanity. And when we live in that love, when we allow ourselves to fall into the mystery of that love and not really know where it will take us, but trust it to God, as Ananias did, not really knowing what he was in for, trusting in God, when we live in that love, we become freed from fear, which it seems to me is the root of almost everything that afflicts us and distorts and perverts our life together as a people. That somebody else is going to get something, I'm not going to get mine. It's a zero-sum game, there's only so much love to have. i got to get mine or you won't get yours. I don't like you, so God doesn't like you. I don't see why you make sense, so you don't make sense. You have to be hated, you have to be hurt, you have to be abused, you have to be distrusted, you have to be abandoned. 
We could only do that when we don't see each other as a child of God. And that is why I've done what I've done for 38 years. Because you know that's true. You know the old adage, Dave, you're preaching to the choir. (laughs) Heck, I'm in the choir. I'm not convincing you. I'm reminding us of that deep truth. That's why I could never leave you. Several times when I looked for other churches, I'd come home and Jerry said, Dave. No, not Dave. She never calls me Dave. <laughs> David. Nobody calls me Dave and gets away with it. Just a couple of people. David, she says, what are you doing? You're in a great place with great people. What do you expect? You think you're going to get something better on the other side? You know, the grass is not greener on the other side of the hill. You have given glory to God. You do give glory to God. We'll continue to give glory to God. Because like Ananias, when you hear the call, whether it's in your English language name or some other serious, simple, mysterious movement of the Spirit, you respond. You live the life, an authentic life, as followers of the way. And for that, I know nothing else to say, but thanks be to God. Amen.